According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. We are in the midst of the opening paragraph. Well, we have uh, a greeting in those early verses, but then we get to the thanksgiving in verses 3 and following really all the way down through verse 11 in uh, Paul's uh, rejoicing and thankfulness for how faithful the Lord has been, the uh, fellowship that he has had and continues to have with the believers there at the church in Philippi. It says in Philippians 1.3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation, that's fellowship, your fellowship participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And so this sparked his prayer life, it sparked his remembrance and his thanksgiving and his celebration, the sacrifices that he was offering up in prayer before the Lord on their behalf, all because of this fellowship participation in the gospel. And then he gets to verse 6, and this is where we are this morning. He says, I am confident, or we could say persuaded, I have been persuaded of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so everything that he's thankful for is not enough. We're not stopping with that. Uh, Too many believers get content with a good start. And a good start is not victorious at the judgment seat of Christ. It's the strong finish that we should be working towards. We need to, uh, to work towards that strong finish. And so as we deal with persuasion and perfection, uh, I think we got a couple of P's here in this verse that we'll spend some time with and, uh, and be blessed in, uh, in this process. So uh, again, verse 6, I am persuaded. And that's where we're going to pick it up here after we open with a word of prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment of silent prayer to ask the Father's blessing upon our time to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness. And Father... uh, just so thankful that here we are this morning to receive the Word of God. And once again, you are going to demonstrate your faithfulness. The faithfulness of God, the Holy Spirit, who leads us in the truth, who teaches us, who communicates to our human spirits. Your faithfulness, Father, to open our eyes to see what it is we need to see, to hear what we need to hear. And Father, uh, we just call upon that faithfulness yet again. We want to study, Father, not to become know-it-alls or arrogant and puffed up with our knowledge, but Father, to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Father, mold us into that image of Christ, even as we learn His Word. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let me find the right slide here. What we're looking at, we're looking at this one. The confident persuasion that Paul speaks of here, the confident persuasion that you and I can have and should have. Confident persuasion is a great blessing from the Lord. And the verb here, the Greek verb that's in verse 6 is the verb patho. I've been talking about it for a couple weeks now, and uh, I don't know if I have yet succeeded in persuading you, but uh, I will continue to persuade you that this verb is an important one to understand, that this concept is critical in recognizing what God does as He relates to us. God does not coerce, but God does persuade, and we want to understand that. That God designed us as as responsive creatures, as volitional creatures, but He expects us to respond to His truth, to respond to His promises, to respond to Him. And in each of these circumstances, our response is called in Scripture, faith. All right, We are believing, we are trusting, we are placing our faith in God Himself and His faithfulness. And and the process to to take us to that point is God's work of persuasion. And so this persuasion is is God's hand, it's God's grace, it's it's the, the convicting of the Holy Spirit and the drawing of the Father and the drawing of the Son, the arrangement of our circumstances, everything God does to persuade us. 
so that our thinking is then adjusted to his thinking, all right? And as we're going to see again and again and again in the book of Philippians, this is a thinking book. Time and time again we have thinking vocabulary, commands for how we are to think, that we are to have the mind of Christ, we are to have the attitude which Christ had himself, that humble attitude we'll see in Philippians chapter 2. Even in this chapter, um, in verse 7, oh, it bugs me to death. Uh, It says, it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. Cross off that word feel. It's a thinking verb. It is only right for me to think this way about you all. And I want us to be biblical. I want us to be adjusted to God's standard. And when the scripture tells us how to think, then we need to think in that way. All right? And it's about our thinking. Too much of our generation, too much of our culture is totally sold out to the, to the feelings, to the, to the touchy-feely and the emotionalism of things. Scripture doesn't take us there. Scripture trains us how to think. We're renewed in our minds by the Word of God. And this, uh, this becomes important. So uh, to get through the rest of this slide and to get beyond this slide, which is kind of my objective, <laughs> we'll see here today, um, talking about patho, all right? The verb is patho, P-E-I-T-H-O. It's number 3982 if you use your Strong's uh, concordance to, uh, to track your word studies. That's the, the number for patho. It, it does have 52 uses in the New Testament, most of which are on the screen there. Um, important in the active voice and the passive voice. Remember, active voice, the subject is accomplishing the action of the verb. So in the active voice, somebody is doing the persuading. In the passive voice, somebody is receiving the persuading. So it's the difference between persuading somebody else or being persuaded by somebody else. And uh, we have examples of both active voice and passive voice in uh, the New Testament. There's another verb, though, called apetheo. And apetheo is also significant um, in the active voice, right? Uh, Apetheo, when you stick an alpha in front of a Greek term, you're negating it. It's like putting un in front of English. It you're either friendly or unfriendly, right? Um, so if you put an un in front of a term in English, you're, you're creating the opposite of that term. Same thing with the alpha in Greek. When you stick an alpha in front of another verb, then you're reversing it. And so rather than being persuaded, apetheo, you are resisting that persuasion. You are actively keeping yourself unpersuaded, if that makes sense, okay? And just consider that. Consider how rich that is. Because it's not just simply a, a passive thing. It's not just simply, a, well, you know, I still have an open mind, or well, it's still an open question, or well, uh, you know, the jury's still out. It's not a suspended reality. And uh, the idea is an active voice that you are accomplishing the non-persuasion reality in your own soul, right? And that, that's, that's huge. Because that makes it an action that we ourselves are mentally undertaking. Which then, when we are mentally keeping ourselves unpersuaded, you know, it's like um, anyone, and, and, and this, is, this shouldn't shock us because this is common to daily life. How many times have you, have you provided evidence to somebody and they don't want to hear it? <laughs> right? That their ears are closed. They're not listening at all. And they are choosing to not be persuaded. And it doesn't matter how clear your argument is or what, how logical it is or how much sense it makes. They're just not going to think about it. They're not going to be persuaded. They won't let themselves to be persuaded. And that's, uh, that's the verb there. So apetheo is number 544 in the Strong's uh, Concordance. It has 14 additional uses beyond the uh, 52 uses that we have for, uh, for patho. And as we study these verbs, as we study this concept throughout the New Testament, we notice strikingly how frequently these terms are used with uh, pistua, with the verb to believe, or with the noun pistis for faith, how they are used in connection with our faith experience. When we believe in something, when we believe in something, it's because we have been persuaded that it is believable, that it is trustworthy, that it should be believed, right? And so this this then becomes the, the concept that totally destroys the, what the atheists accuse us of doing, that we just have this blind faith, that we believe in nothing, that we just believe because we want something to be true. And that's not the case. 
Scripture never describes it like that. God never expects us to believe like that. God did not design us to believe in nothing. He designed us to respond by faith to His promises. And so if we're persuaded of His faithfulness, and we're persuaded of the truth of what He has said, we place our faith in that, and this this finishes the process that He designed. So we have covered most of those verses, at least through... um, the uh, Gospels through uh, Luke 16 and John 3 and Acts. Uh, We've gone through and we're ready now to tackle Romans and finish out the slide. So let's look at Romans chapter 2. Join me there if you would. Romans chapter 2. Hope your fingers are limber this morning. We're going to flip some pages. All right. Of course, nowadays you just tap glass with your app of whatever it is. I don't know if you're using a Bible app or you're playing uh, Angry Birds or whatever you're doing. I don't know. But... All right. R- uh, Romans chapter 2 and verse 8. And uh, these are all going to be uses of either patho in the active or passive or apitheo in the active. And we see them here in uh, connection with pistuo more often than not. And so... Um, when we talk about repentance and we talk about God's grace and His kindness, I think in context here, going back to verse 4, do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? See, that's a problem. When your thinking is different from God's thinking and He's kinder and more patient than we want Him to be, <laughs> okay, then we need to adjust our thinking and not, uh, not think any less of God for being kinder than we want Him to be. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation in the righteous judgment of God, and uh, who will render to each person according to his deeds, here in verse 6. And we've taught this. We had a Romans class not that long ago, and we've gone through this text, so we should understand it. Notice in verse 7, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. In other words, there are believers in this world and there are unbelievers in this world. Verse 7 describes the believer. Verse 8 describes the unbeliever. To those who are selfishly ambitious and are not persuaded by the truth. It is translated there, do not obey. But here it's that, it's that active voice, right? It's that apetheo, that do not allow themselves to be persuaded by the truth. And then it goes on to say, but they are obedient to, or they are persuaded by unrighteousness. What, what is their destiny then? Wrath and indignation. So if you respond to the gospel by grace through faith, this is the outcome. If you reject the gospel because you are actively not letting yourself being persuaded by the truth, here's the outcome. Wrath and indignation. So that's our use there. I think it's, I think it's powerful. Chapter 8 and verse 38. Romans 8, 38. We should know this. This is uh, my favorite eternal security verse in the entire Bible, right here in Romans 8. What is it that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing. You cannot lose your salvation. As it says here in verse 38, for I am persuaded or I am convinced I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You talk about an absolute statement of eternal security, that's it right there. I mean, you're saved, you're in Christ Jesus, you're in the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. What can separate you from that? God himself can't separate you from that. You can't separate yourself from that. And I've known folks that they're convinced they've lost their salvation because of the terrible things they've done. They've gone to prison for the terrible things they've done and they've convinced themselves that they're not worthy of, of staying saved and so God must clearly have you know, thrown them out of, out of salvation. No, not so. And they're not worthy of staying saved because they're not worthy of being saved. <laughs> they weren't worthy of getting saved. It's not our worthiness when we do get saved. It's the grace of God that saved us. How do we lose that? We can't. We absolutely can't. And so that's why I say again, confident persuasion is a great blessing. 
believers that are confidently persuaded as to eternal security are, are stable. That's a, that's a great provision in the church age. And uh, we see it there. All right, Romans 14, 14, another persuasion application. I know and am persuaded. You notice that? It's two different things. So we, we recognize that, that you, first you have to know the doctrine, and then what do you got to do with it? <laughs> you got to allow it to persuade you. You got to just not just know it as information, not just know it as gnosis or knowledge, but you then have to respond to what you know. You have to let what you know do its work. And you have to let what you know persuade you so that it becomes a part of you, so that it transforms who you are and how you think. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And this is the chapter where Paul deals with the doubtful things, deals with the issues of conscience, meat sacrifice to idols, or other issues that we can relate to in modern times. All right? And some believers with their faith and with their conscience, they struggle with a lot of things. And uh, they, they find sin in a lot of things that maybe other believers don't find sin in. See? And it might be smoking or drinking or dancing or movies or, or other things. And, and some Christians have a conscience that gets bothered by certain activities. All right? And, and we're not talking about becoming legalistic and judgmental about it and judging other people. We're just talking about legitimate applications that they have. And, uh, and, and, and differences of, of applications. And so we should be convinced. And that's what this chapter deals with here. So I know and am convinced. And each one of us should come to this point. Nothing in itself is unclean. So eating meat sacrificed to idols, Paul was fine with that. Paul had no, no conscience issues at all with that because he realizes the idol is just a silly, uh, you know, a, a fallen angel pretending to be a god, so who cares, <laughs> right? God's the, crea- the real God is the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of this animal, so it's, it's dead, it's cooked, let's eat it, right? That's, that's Paul's attitude. But other believers, they'll struggle, struggle mildly, and especially in Corinth. Hey, this was, this was sacrificed to Aphrodite, and several of those believers used to, used to partake in that activity, right? How many of the, how many of the women in Corinth used to be the, the temple prostitutes at the, at the Aphrodite temple. You think they'd have a hang-up with, with some of the, the, the menu items that were brought in to the, to the church potluck? Okay. Well, it was a struggle. It was a struggle. And so Paul says, look, this is legitimate. And so you know the Scriptures, you allow the Scriptures to persuade you, and you live out your faith convictions as your conscience is, is molded and shaped in, uh, in that way. And, and so it's good. we get to actually, it's a win-win because each believer gets to treat the other believer in grace, uh, especially uh, when their conviction is different than yours, okay? And so uh, we see this here. Verse 19 says, uh, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Don't tear them down because they've got a different conviction from you. Build them up. And um, don't tear down, it says in verse 20, the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. So you can actually use your liberty to ruin a brother and, uh, or a sister, and, uh, and then it's evil for you because you just ruined your brother. What are you doing that for? So it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. And then to me, verse 22 spells it out. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. That's what it comes down to, okay? And, and we're talking about all of these, we're talking about the non-essentials, the doubtful things, the gray areas. The, the, we're not talking about sin, okay? Things that are clearly banned in Scripture are clearly banned in Scripture, and you, you don't get away with doing them anyway and saying, well, you know, my conscience is fine with it. No, we're talking about the, the things that are not sin, that uh, you're neither the better if you do nor the worse if you don't, okay? The things that we have liberty to do in Christ. And so the faith which you have, have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats. See, the doubt reflects a lack of faith. 
because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. So this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the persuasion that's connected to faith, that's connected to letting the Word of God do its work, to where you know something and you let it persuade you and it it affects how you think. It actually shapes who you are. And being shaped that way, being molded that way, being transformed that way, your thinking then has a reflection and that's called your behavior. (laughs) Okay, How you live, what you do. That's what we're about. Okay? And that keeps you from being a legalist. And that keeps you from having your little clipboard and your check marks and following people around and making sure they're living up to your standards and what they're doing. Okay? Throw that clipboard away. Who cares? Okay? Because we let the Word of God do the transformation. And as the Word of God transforms us, everything else follows. It just follows as a matter of course. We can relax about that. All right. That becomes... uh, a whole sermon right there. All right, chapter 15 and verse uh, 14. Romans 15, 14. Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am persuaded or convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. And here's a, here's a huge blessing. This is a blessing for brothers and sisters that are considering ministry that are training and preparing to pursue ministry. And, uh, you know, you could have some ambition, you could have some zeal, you could have some youthful exuberance, you can uh, have this love for Jesus and you want to go out there and conquer the world and get everybody saved. But perhaps um, you would do better with some equipping, with some training, with some uh, foundation to work with, with the preparation for your ministry. All right, not dampening down your enthusiasm one bit, just saying, okay? Um, You want your spiritual leadership, and this chapter is the Apostle Paul, to be persuaded. He says, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are, and then here's the description, full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. So they had a spiritual estimation of what they were ready to start doing. Paul shared in that. He, he was persuaded that, yes, they are correct in their preparation and readiness and uh, ministry capacity. And so it goes on. But still, we have the persuasion there. And, all right. That's why I think the, the warnings come not to lay hands on a man too hastily right? We, we, we want to be very cautious in our ordinations and in, in, in any ministry pursuit. Not just, I mean, the biggie that we, is, is a pastor taking a pulpit, but even prior to that, you know, what happens if you get Sunday school teachers and they're not ready to be Sunday school teachers yet? Or what happens if you've got deacons that shouldn't be deacons because they're not ready for that yet? Or, or you've got any, any realm of service, okay? Glad for the enthusiasm and, and churches rarely turn down volunteers, but we, when we say though, we want you to do the right work for the right reason. To be equipped and to be prepared and to be glorifying Jesus Christ in all that you do. It's a matter of conviction. It's a matter of persuasion. All right, so that's Romans 15, 14. 2 Corinthians 5, 11. 2 Corinthians 5, 11. And um, this comes in a context that follows the judgment seat of Christ in verse 10. There's actually a a, a message here in the first part of chapter 5 all about resurrection, right? A great message that says, hey, if if this tent is torn down, we got a a mansion waiting for us, okay? This body is just an earthly thing. Um, And so it's a good passage here on the resurrection, but uh, so it says we have good courage. We prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord in verse 8. This is all a part of walking by faith and not by sight in verse 7. And so we have true Christian ambition in verse 9. Uh, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Whether I live or whether I die on this day, I want to be pleasing to God the Father. That's an ambition in Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for the deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So it is given unto man once to die and after that the judgment, right? We're going to see this in the book of Hebrews. It's taught right here, this doctrine right here. 
that what we do in this life is being recorded in books. Our deeds are being recorded, and they're either gold, silver, and precious stones, or it's wood, hand, stubble. What are we doing in our production? Are we in fellowship or are we out of fellowship? Are we filled with the Spirit or are we filled with ourselves? What are we doing? And why are we doing it? Because God's keeping record. And we will give an account. We will stand before that judgment seat of Christ. And we will be recompensed. So that then feeds the therefore of verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. You and I have this fear of the Lord as we live day by day accountable to the judgment seat of Christ. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. This is our activity. See, God's a persuader and He expects us to be persuaders. We persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we're made manifest also in your consciences. All right, so there's our role. This is part of our ministry as ambassadors, part of what we do in uh, representing the Lord in our ambassadorial function. We are persuading men in the eyes of God. All right. Had a couple uses in Galatians, Galatians 5. Of course, uh, that's most recently, before our Philippians series was our Galatians series. Spent two and a half years, nearly three years really, doing Galatians. So um, no excuse for uh, forgetting these verses. Galatians 5, you were running well, verse 7, who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were running well, who hindered you from being persuaded by the truth? Again, it's patho. And yes, there's a smattering of places where it's rendered obey or disobey, but we understand the fundamental concept behind patho is persuasion. If you're obeying the Scriptures, it's because you're persuaded that the Scriptures are sovereign in your life. And if you decide to go into a life of sin, then you're persuaded that you don't care about the Scriptures. All right? Or that your, your lust or your selfishness is, is uh, more important to you than, than the Scriptures. Okay? This also we've got coming up in Philippians because uh, there's those that oppose the cross. There's the enemies that, whose God is their belly. And that's what it comes down to. If you're not going to let the Scriptures persuade you, then uh, your belly will persuade you. And that's not a good thing. All right, so that's verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you? And, and all you can do is look in the mirror and point the finger, okay? Because uh, we're accountable. God holds us accountable. You yourselves. And then he goes on. There's a cognate noun here too in verse 8. This persuasion... And uh, it's a cognate noun from, from the verb. This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. So he's answering his own question here. God's not the one that persuaded you here. You persuaded yourself. Or, the, or you listened to the adversary when Satan was tempting. This persuasion did not come from him who called you. And then down to verse 10, Paul says, Now I have been persuaded, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. And so uh, the, the uses here, from their persuasion to his persuasion, it's, it's fun. And I remember emphasizing this as we worked our way through this text. I am persuaded in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. Okay? And, uh, and he knows who he is. <laughs> All right. So uh, we see it there. Remember that? All right. And this too, I think, is useful. Pastors can relax also in the sense that we teach the truth, but we know that it's, it's the Holy Spirit that's persuading. We know that it's God that's at work. Uh, we know that uh, as the Word of God goes forth, you have to actively receive it, actively be persuaded by it, that we're not, as, not, we're not designed as a cult. Like the pastor doesn't force you to think the way he does, right? But the Word of God goes forth and it shapes me and it shapes you, it shapes us all. We're, we're growing into that image of Christ. And that's the, that's the beautiful thing of it. So there you have it. Over to Philippians. And of course verse 6 is what started this whole thing and where we are. But it's not the only use of patho in this chapter. We've got another one coming up in verse 14. And um, we'll see it. 
He says in verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that's good news. Hey, I'm in jail. Isn't that great? Okay. And then you think at first it's not good to be in jail until you then realize, you know what? God, God had a plan for this. There's a purpose for why I'm here. It's better that I'm here instead of not being here because God has worked this together for good. Okay? That's why this, this whole principle in chapter 1, I think, is going to be powerful for us as a church. We quit whining about our circumstances and start praising God for our circumstances, knowing that it's in those circumstances that God's producing the glory for Jesus Christ. It's going to turn out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord, and notice, trusting in the Lord, because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And so they're being persuaded, they're applying faith and all of this while they're watching what Paul's going through in his testing. It's an amazing thing to see how this all comes together. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's kind of upside down and backwards from how the world would think about it, right? The world says, ooh, pressure's ramping up. Ooh, it's getting a little, uh, the conflict's getting harsh. I, mean, I better back off a little bit, right? I better ease up a little bit. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to make people mad. Or, or man, it's, I, could, I could get into some serious trouble. Yeah. And, and it's not to back off. It's you put the pedal to the metal. Accelerate all the more, see? which in a Mustang convertible is kind of fun. And not so much in the Scion XB. That's uh, put the pedal to the metal and it thinks about it for a little bit. All right. But I'm saying when the, when the uh, angelic conflict ramps up, man, get persuaded really quickly that you're onto something. Realize, hey, if the adversary doesn't like this, I must be serving the Lord. I'm doing something right. Thank you, Lord. And, uh, and excel still more. Keep going at it. That's, uh, that's verse 14. Look at this. How about that? Chapter 2's got more persuasion. Oh, and wait a minute. Chapter 3's got more persuasion. Philippians has a lot of persuasion. Okay? Which shouldn't shock us because Philippians is a book about our thinking. And how does our thinking get, get shaped? Persuasion. So Philippians 2 and verse 24, <clears throat> this is when he's hoping to send Timothy. And, uh, and then even if he gets his own release, he's going to show up also. Philippians 2.19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Remember in Romans, we saw that it's good for the spiritual leaders to be persuaded about the suitability of, of their believers for ministry, the suitability of believers for engaging in different spiritual activities. And in some cases, they're suited for it. In some cases, they're not suited for it because they're not ready yet. There's, there's pride issues or there's other problems. They need to be worked through. They need to be trained. They need to be developed. You know, a man comes to me and says, uh, hey, I think I might be a pastor teacher. I don't say, hey, great and send them off to a pulpit the next week, okay? There's going to be training involved. There's going to be languages to learn. There's going to be doctrine and theology and all of this. Here he says, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. And so everybody else in his training ministry wasn't ready to, to fly solo like Timothy was. And that's, uh, that's significant. And you'll notice it's a spiritual maturity. It is an attitude prerequisite. Okay? Not the, the Greek and the Hebrew and the theology and those other things. Now, somebody might be totally lined up with all the languages and all the doctrine, but they're still arrogant. They're not ready. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. You know, if a man's not willing to serve, he's not capable of leading. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am persuaded in the Lord or by the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. And this is, again, it's a persuasion. It's a matter of personal conviction. It's just a sense that you have that God has, 
has laid on your heart that this is what he has for you. Okay? And it's not faith, but it is persuasion. Very subjective in, in, uh, in its application there. And, that, and so some people don't, aren't comfortable with that, by the way. Um, it, it, it smacks of, 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 of a you know, charismatic experience. It, it smacks of something uh, subjective. Yes, it's subjective. Okay? And it's not charismatic, it's real. All right? You have a persuasion from the Lord. Okay? It's not, it's not a verse. You can't point to a verse. There's no 3 Timothy 5.9 that says, you know, such and such. Okay? So it's not, it's not a faith application and a promise, but it is a persuasion by the Lord that's working in and through you, both the will and to do of His good pleasure. And that's how he describes it here. And I myself will be coming to you shortly. Uh, Philippians 3, verses 3 and 4. And uh, here it's translated as confidence. Of course, verse 2 says, beware of the dogs, my favorite verse. And uh, beware of evil workers, beware of false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Again, the verb is patho and we want to think of it in a, in a persuasion activity. If you're putting confidence in the flesh, then you are persuading yourself that your human ability is sufficient. How pathetic is that? You know, the worst deceit is self-deceit. The worst, uh, uh, you know, when you're lying to yourself and persuading yourself that the, the Spirit's not persuading you, God the Holy Spirit is not persuading you that your flesh is up to the task. It's your flesh persuading you that your flesh is up to the task. And you're allowing your flesh to persuade you. You're allowing your humanity to persuade you. And Paul says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put their confidence in the flesh, I far more. And he goes on to describe his earthly qualifications goes on to describe his humanity, his flesh, and what it is in earthly terms that might count for something. And uh, things they might bank on. See, maybe you know, you're banking on how smart you are, or how good looking you are, or your education, or your bank account, or whatever else. And uh, you've got confidence in the flesh. Right? You think I can handle it? Hadn't let me down yet? Yeah, it has. <laughs> okay. And he goes on to describe all of his qualifications. Everything was going for him. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. So as far as earthly requirements go, he was the pinnacle. He had everything going for him. He, had all, he, could, he was the super Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And he says, all of that is scubalon. All of that is rubbish. All of that is, is um, we, would, we have other expressions in the English that are kind of crude uh, that reference the excrement that Paul says, it's just a pile. And he says, I want no part of it. Okay? And the Bible is that blunt. Isn't that amazing? All right. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And when you lose it all for Jesus, what have you lost? Nothing. Because it was all scubalon anyway. He says, and I count them but rubbish, scubalon, so that I may gain Christ. There's a text. Can't wait to get to chapter 3. So when you allow yourself to be persuaded, when you let your flesh persuade you that your flesh can handle whatever, that's not confidence, okay? That's setting yourself up for the next fall. The big application there. All right, 2 Timothy. We are going to finish this. I'm watching the clock. 2 Timothy. A couple of verses in chapter 1. 2 Timothy 1, verse 5 and verse 12. 
Remember, 2 Timothy is different from 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, uh, no indication of being in prison or facing death. But in 2 Timothy, yeah, he's uh, in prison and he will not be released. He knows that he's finished his course and he is, he is uh, going to depart. And uh, his, his release code is, uh, oh, I forgot. I used to know all my release codes. I worked in the jail for eight years and we had release codes for uh, you finished your sentence, you were transferred to the state penitentiary, you, um, uh, the judge's order, the judge ordered your release, or uh, you escaped, there was a code for escape, uh, or you died. And if you died in custody, we had a code for that, whereby we assigned you as now released. You're no longer in our custody after you're dead. Uh, so Paul knew in Second uh, Timothy that his release code from custody was going to be his, his physical death. That, uh, that, and that's why he is urging Timothy to come to him as quickly as he can. So he says in verse 4, "...longing to see you even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy." For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois, in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that it is in you as well. This is his persuasion that he sees a lifelong devotion to the Word of God. In, uh, in a grandmother that's been on doctrine for 80 years, and a mother that's been on doctrine for 40 years, and here's Timothy, that he's going to be on doctrine for the rest of his life in the Word of God. There's a persuasion there. In verse 12, for this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know, I know whom I have pestuoed, believed, and I am per- patho, persuaded that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. All right, we're going to sing that hymn today. It's a good hymn. I like it. And it's about persuasion. It's about knowing what you know and loving the one who promised so that you are persuaded by what he has revealed here in his word. Hebrews 6, 9. Hebrews 6, 9. Beloved, talking to believers, believers that need to grow past baby uh, they need to go past the milk. That's how chapter 5 ends. You know, what are you doing nursing? You know, forget leaving home at 35 years old. You're still nursing at 35 years old. What are you doing? Leave the breast milk. Come on. We need meat. And, uh, and believers in doctrine need to be growing in the deep things of God. And so chapter 6 starts this way about leaving the elementary teachings and, and pressing on. And uh, verse 9, Beloved, we are convinced, we are persuaded of better things concerning you. Well, what could be better than being saved? Well, let me tell you something. A beginning is not perfection, okay? We are convinced, persuaded of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation that we are speaking in this way. And it goes on to describe the uh, full assurance of hope until the end, the diligence there in verse 11. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end and that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So that's coming up. Over to chapter 13. More persuasion in chapter 13. Verse 17 and verse 18. Again, the verb is patho. The verb is persuade, either in the active voice or the passive voice. Either persuade somebody or be persuaded. And it says in Hebrews 13, 17, and this is uh, a blessing. He says, um, obey your leaders and submit to them because they deserve it. Oh, wait a minute, I might have misread that. Did I read that right, verse 17? Obey your leaders and submit to them. They probably don't deserve it. But they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. 
that they are shepherds and guardians. Remember, Jesus is the shepherd and guardian of your soul, and he has appointed under shepherds in the local church for this function. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. They're shepherding your soul accountable to the Lord. And so it says, obey. Now the verb there to obey is what we've been looking at all morning, is patho. Be persuaded. Be persuaded. So as your leaders are teaching the Word of God, be persuaded. It's not just some slave cult obedience to everything the, the, the pastor says. You just have to mindlessly follow and do whatever. No. God says, think. <laughs> be persuaded by your leaders. Submit to them. Submission is not slavish obedience, right? For they keep watch over your souls as those who give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, Right? It can go one of two ways. We can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. We can do this the joyous way or the grief way, grievous way. How do you want to do it? It's up to you. Now see, if the shepherd is faithful, he'll do it either way. He'll he'll hate every minute of it, but he'll keep doing it because he loves the Lord. And he's going to shepherd with grief. He's going to stay faithful. And who loses reward in those circumstances? You do. It says, this would be unprofitable for you. (laughs) In Ukraine a couple weeks ago, I was telling the students, and we we were in this passage with the the college students in in Ukraine, and I said, "This, this has to be the easiest reward you could ever pile up at the judgment seat of Christ. It's it's called the let your pastor shepherd you with joy award. Okay? And it stands opposed to let your pastor pastor you with grief Loss of reward. Because that's what's unprofitable. You want a profit? You want to lay up treasure in heaven? You want a reward waiting for you in the judgment seat of Christ? Let your shepherds shepherd with joy. Let them add joy to their thanksgiving prayers. As the Philippians did. Okay? Don't let the prayers be the grief prayers that the Corinthians did for the Apostle Paul. Then it goes on. Pray for us. For we are persuaded that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. So in back to back, verse 17, verse 18, we got twin um, uses of patho here, and, and I think it gets lost in the English because it's rendered obey in verse 17 and it's rendered sure in verse 18. I think the, the, the text, the, the English text there kind of loses the tandem of, uh, of what they should be persuaded by and what Paul's persuaded of and uh, that, that come here in back-to-back verses in verse 17 and verse 18. All right. Finally then, 1 John 3.19, our last use of patho that we're going to see. 1 John 3.19. So this is a non-Pauline use, by the way. Most of these we've seen have all come from the pen of the Apostle Paul or in the case of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews. Um, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth, and we will persuade, assure our heart before Him. And so again, this has to do with our reception of truth, walking in the Word of God, letting the Word of God do its work, where we're not just phonies that know a lot of stuff, but we're living it out in, in uh, deed and in truth. And in whatever our heart condemns us, for, what, uh, for our God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And this is our growth. This is what happens when the Word of God shapes who we are. Okay, When, we, when we're honest with the Word of God, when we let the Word of God shape who we are, when we're not lying to God about what the Word of God says. Oh, that's not what it says. Oh, that's not what it says. Oh, that's not what it means. Oh, that's not what it means. Or that doesn't apply to me. And, and, and how many Christians are just resisting every conviction that comes to them from Scripture? And instead of letting the conviction from Scripture shape those things that need to be convicted and remove those things that need to be removed and transform those things that need to be transformed. Because that's what the Word of God is, desire, is uh, designed to do. 
All right. So that's persuasion. Next, this verse talks about perfection. We go from persuasion to perfection. Again, let me get back to Philippians 1.6. I am persuaded that he who began a good work in you will be happy with what he got started. <laughs> will be happy with a good beginning. Who will grow content and say, well, that's good enough. No. <laughs> Not at all. We do that. We grow complacent. We grow content. We say, well, that's good enough. And we look back at what lies behind and we say, yeah, that's all right. I'm good with that. And Scripture says, forget what lies behind. Reach forward to what lies ahead. Don't assume you've laid hold of anything yet. Don't rest on your laurels thinking that you've got it in the bag. You've got it won. It's, it's, it's a done deal. Forget all that. Reach forward and assume that there's nothing behind you and you're looking to grab your first treasure to lay up in heaven. Anyway, he says, I am persuaded of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Remember, the standard is perfection. God expects perfection. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And saving you, yes, it's a perfect salvation, but saving you is simply Step one, for the rest of your life in the Word of God, for the rest of your transformation. You have a positional transformation while you're saved, but it's that experiential transformation that takes place day after day as long as it's called today. That experiential transformation that takes place. It's what we call sanctification. It's what we call that, that perfecting holiness in the fear of Christ. We're, we're growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When Jesus said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, He didn't say, in my Father's house are many port-a-cribs. Port-a-cribs, you know, a little baby crib. Okay? If there's a baby on the way, you've got to start thinking of these kind of things. You've got to start thinking about cribs. You've got to start thinking about baby blankets and booties and uh, little hats and all that fun stuff. Okay, But God, Jesus didn't say, I go to prepare a nursery for you. I go to prepare a place for you. It's the Father's plan to bring many sons to glory. God the Father wants to have adult fellowship with you and with me. There's, there's very little, fe- okay, there's no fellowship with an infant. Okay, none. You can goo-goo all you want and yeah, they're cute, I get that but you're not fellowshipping with an infant. You're not talking doctrine. You're not glorifying Jesus Christ in the conversation of the deep things of God and the Word of God. You're, uh, you're raising them up so that they can get to that point. Then as with an adult son, you can then talk through the Scriptures. I love it when my children want to talk Scripture. That's great. It's better than politics or weather or sports or anything like that. Okay? Understand, a beginning is not a perfection. You know, Jesus was born. Um, I'm, I'm going to introduce this, and then we'll we'll let it go until Wednesday night. But because um, we're almost at the end of our hour. Uh, but Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, sinless, perfect. The babe in the manger. The babe in the manger didn't go to the cross. All right, understand that Jesus grew up. And at the age of 30, or thereabouts, being over the age of 30, he went to the Jordan River, was baptized, received the Holy Spirit, began his adult ministry, which required tremendous testing, which required tremendous undeserved suffering. He was shaped by that undeserved suffering. He was shaped by the Word of God. He was prepared to go to the cross. And he didn't know his success or his failure until Gethsemane until his victory in the garden the night before when he said, not my will but thine be done. And then he had his persuasion that the next day was going to be victory at the the cross. All right, And so these things are are significant. The beginning is not perfection. We had this in Galatians 3.3. We had this in uh, Paul's rhetorical question to them. He says, are you out of your minds? 
Are you insane? You ever asked anybody that? Um, well, okay. I realize most of us, or we have many wives here this morning that I'm sure have asked their husbands at some point, are you out of your mind? Are you so foolish? He says in verse 1, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Who has bewitched you? You are so out of your mind, you must be under a spell. You have got to be under some kind of a spell because no person in their right mind would walk away from grace the way you guys are walking away from grace. He says, uh, this only thing I want to find out from you, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? When you got saved, did you earn it? Did you deserve it? Did you work for it? Or is it by grace through faith? How did you get saved? Okay, great rhetorical question. There's only one way to answer that. Okay, I got saved by grace through faith, and so did you. We all can testify to that. So then he goes on. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, in other words, the grace through faith that saved you, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see that? There's the beginning, and there's the perfection, and they're different things. But it's still grace through faith every step of the way. You got saved by grace through faith. Your perfection is going to be by grace through faith. All day, every day, by grace through faith. Coming to Bible class by grace through faith. Learning the Word of God by grace through faith. Living the Word of God in your daily life by grace through faith. Dealing with coworkers, everything, every test by grace through faith. It doesn't matter. Money test, health test, employment test, marital test, whatever, your victory will come, your perfection will come by grace through faith. And if you, uh, if you try to do any of that in the flesh, forget it. Not going to happen. All right, our verb here is epitaleo. Epitaleo. And it is an intensive, it's a compound from teleo. It's a compound from telos, which we'll talk about. And epi is intensifying, like gnosis and epinosis, knowledge and full knowledge. So you've got complete, and then you've got complete, complete. <laughs> Epi-complete, okay? Fully complete. And uh, 10, New Testament uses there. The strongest number is, uh, is 2005. And it means to perfect, to finish, to complete. The fact is, if it doesn't happen, it's not complete. If you never finish it, it's not perfect okay so the unfinished believer is a problem in the plan of god the unfinished believer is out of the will of god see if he decides to depart from the path of that perfection if he chooses to leave the the race that's set before him he's losing the uh, the benefit of the will of god in that perfection path that god has put us on we'll deal with that also let me just tease you it comes from telos there's a cognate adjective of teleos, where you get to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's got compound, it's got uh, the root verbs of teleo and teleao. And then that's only five out of 23 New Testament terms that all come from the telos root. There is a monster study behind this. God says a lot of things related to perfection and completion. God's a perfectionist. All right? And thank God that He is. Thank God that God's not complacent and lazy like we are. Where He just looks at us and goes, eh, okay, whatever. Right? Man, thank God He doesn't. Doesn't put up with that. Okay? Because He knows better. He pushes us. He's like a drill sergeant, right? He knows that you can do 10 more push-ups. He knows you can run one more mile. He's going to yell at you and make you do it. And you don't think you can do it. You certainly don't want to do it. But that mean guy in the brown hat's yelling at you. And he gets you to do it. It's amazing. And our Father, that's what he does. And I love the fact that he does that. So we'll come back Wednesday night, Lord willing, and rapture pending, and uh, remind ourselves that uh, it's about perfection. It's not about beginning. Father, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for your truth and I thank you for this, uh, this wonderful Bible verse that speaks about persuasion and perfection. And Father, uh, I ask that we might be persuaded that the doctrine from this verse might do its work and it would be implanted in our souls, that it would dwell richly, 
that, Father, would start to shape our thinking about your word and you and us and what we're doing and why we're doing it. I pray that your word would persuade and that we would now be motivated to pursue the uh, the perfection that you've uh, designed us for. And Father, it's, uh, it's stunning. I love the Apostle Paul and his illustrations. He uses Olympic games. He uses boxing and racing and other athletic uh, metaphors. Father, he uses these illustrations to show that it's about finishing the course. It's about the finish line, not the starting line. It's about the the reward that's given to the overcomer. And I pray, Father, that, that uh, this would also open our eyes and shape our thinking. And if any of us are complacent or sufficient, we think, well, that's enough and I've done a lot. Father, uh, reshape our thinking. Throw all that scubalon out, Father, that we've done nothing. We're reaching forward to what lies ahead. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is